This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist and I've lived and worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas for about 30 years. I started Self Work five years ago because I wanted to extend the walls of my practice to several groups of you, those who might already be interested in psychological, emotional issues, you might already be in therapy and just want another perspective, to those of you who might have just been diagnosed with something or you're looking for answers but also to a third group of you, those of you who might say to your best friend, I would never go to therapy, but you're just unhappy enough and curious enough to listen to self-work. So welcome to all of you. We have a huge treat for you today. Kimberly Quinlan, I've known now for over two years. She was kind enough to interview me when I wrote the book Perfectly Hidden Depression, because as she says in the interview, she found herself in the pages there. She is delightful. She practices out of the state of California, and she specializes in anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, eating disorders, and body-focused repetitive behaviors. That would be like trichotillomania and that kind of thing. She provides one-on-one treatment, and she also has online courses. She's got something called the CBT School, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy School. And I really recommend that any of you who struggle listen to her podcast, which is Your Anxiety Toolkit. But also, what I wanted to interview her about was her new book. And that new book is called The Self-Compassion Workbook for OCD. Lean into your fear, manage difficult emotions, and focus on recovery. She's got all kinds of wonderful reviews for the book from really people who are very well known, Tara Brock, Reed Wilson, who I admire so much. Just a lot of people who have been in this field for a long time admire her work and want you to be able to benefit from it. I read the thing cover to cover, and I really loved In fact, I've already recommended this book to one of my patients. It's that good. I know you'll love how Kimberly approaches her treatment of OCD, which is, according to her, and this makes so much sense to me, it's a disorder where there's a lot of self-loathing. And so she is approaching it from a very self-compassionate way that I think is vital for people to understand that they have a problem, but they also need to be compassionate with themselves. But before we get to Kimberly's interview, we want to hear from BetterHelp, who has been a proud sponsor of Self Work Now for at least a couple of years. Many of you have let me know that you've tried their services and have been very pleased. So I'm so happy to once again have an episode sponsored by BetterHelp. Here's a great offer they have for you. BetterHelp has been a sponsor of self-work for at least a year or more. And I'm so glad to have them on board. BetterHelp isn't a crisis line and it's not self-help. It's actual professional therapy online. And as I've done much more virtual work during the pandemic, I've seen firsthand how effective and convenient virtual work is. When you contact BetterHelp, you'll get a response from a licensed therapist in as little as 48 hours, and they'll make sure you feel your therapist is a wonderful match for you. I, of course, tried this, and I was impressed with the therapist they presented to me as well as what the therapist themselves offered. 
And BetterHelp and I want 2022 to be your most mentally healthy year ever. So just visit betterhelp.com slash selfwork and you'll get a special offer to get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash selfwork. Hope you'll give it a try, especially getting 2022 off to a great start. And now, without further ado, I want to introduce you to my friend and fellow clinician, Kimberly Quinlan. Kimberly, I'm delighted to have you on Self Work today. You were kind enough a couple of years ago to have me on your anxiety toolkit, and I am so glad I get to return the favor. Oh, I'm so honored to be on your show. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And I have read your book and I took notes. I have five pages of notes. (laughs) So I'm really ready to dig into it. I loved what you first said and uh, about self-compassion. The book title is called The Self-Compassion Workbook for OCD. Lean into your fear, manage difficult emotions, and focus on recovery. So my first question really is a... Maybe one about the selection of self-compassion. I wondered what you thought was so important, or is that a particularly difficult skill or, or skill set to have for people with OCD? Yeah. So actually, when the publisher reached out to speak, uh, to ask me to write a book, we, I was actually going to write a book about hair pulling and skin picking, which is another of my specialties. And just as we were at the final stage of submission, my editor said, now, is there anything that you would want to write a book about more than this one topic? Like, is, is this the topic you want to talk about? And I was like, well, actually, there's one topic I really want to talk about, and that is self-compassion for my OCD clients, just because I have found that uh, we have some great treatments for OCD, but my patients with OCD tend to be the hardest on themselves, the most critical, and they do a lot of self-punishment. And I really wanted to, to address that because I think it is a major issue that's not being looked at in treatment. And so that's how the book came about. Well, I, I loved that that was your focus. I uh, A little personal data. My mother had OCD and it was untreated. Uh, she self-treated with prescription meds to which she became addicted. And so, and that led to a lot of chaos. But I watched OCD up close and personal. She was a lot of the uh, symmetry and everything had to be just right, that kind of perfectionistic stuff. So anyway, I, I've certainly had patients through the years who've had it and I wish I'd had your book. (laughs) So you're obviously quite the expert. I loved, this is very early on, like the second or third page, you said self-compassion isn't flowers and unicorns. Can you talk about what you mean? Sure. So often when people think of self-compassion, interestingly, the first thing they think of is sort of letting you off the hook, being really gentle, not pushing yourself, only like only being at ease all the time. And I really wanted to make sure people understood that that is not what we're talking about here when we talk about self-compassion. And that's true for everybody, whether you have OCD or not. Self-compassion can be nurturing. It can be loving kindness and warmth. 
but it can also be fierce and showing up for yourself unconditionally. It can be motivational. It can be supportive. And and so I wanted to make sure I highlighted right, right in the very beginning of the book that it isn't unicorns and rainbows. Mm -mm. Sometimes it's doing the hard thing that can be the most self-compassionate thing. And so that's um, really what I wanted to highlight. Well, you talk about that there are six components of self-compassion and I found a couple of them really interesting. Equality, mindfulness, warm-heartedness, which is sort of what you're talking about there, wisdom, acceptance of imperfection, and compassionate responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the thing that I was most intrigued by was your idea that everyone can develop wisdom. And I, I... even say on my podcast, everybody has their own bit of wisdom. And so I, I would agree with that statement, but I wondered why that's included in such a prominent way. Mm. Because of the fact that self, like really, if we've, we, we really outline self-compassion, it's giving ourselves the same love and kindness and support that we would give another Mm-hmm. if they were going through a similar degree of suffering, right? And so often when somebody else is suffering, we know pretty instinctually what we need to do. M- most of us do. Some, some of us struggle or we're never, never perfect, but most of us know what to do. And we go to that really quickly, right? We know to lean in. We know to, to um, ask them how we can help them and so forth. But when it comes to our own caring for ourselves, we tend to lose that wisdom because we're fighting blame and guilt and all of the emotions and societal expectations. So a big part of self-compassion is growing on that inner wisdom that we have of knowing what we need and knowing because that's the the royal question of self-compassion is what do I need? And so we have to tap into our inner wisdom to answer that question. Um, And so um, that's why I included the wisdom piece. We all have it. We may have lost touch with it. But by by practicing compassion, you can actually develop a deep sense of your inner wisdom of what you need when you're suffering or when you're in distress. And it can be beautiful to really grow and increase on that wisdom. On a much more pragmatic note, I did. You didn't talk a lot about it. There was a, a maybe a small section in the book about the biology of OCD or the neurophysiology of OCD, and you talked about there's a part of the brain that processes errors that is overactive. Is that the amygdala? Is that what you were talking about? Yeah, there's there's multiple different parts of the brain that are are a part of that, and so um, so there's a part of the brain. Um, the amygdala is part of it, and it's how the connection is between the prefrontal cortex and other areas of the brain. We know that the, the connection is a slightly weak for those with OCD and OCD-related disorders. But the cool news is, and I hopefully I got this point across, is the more you practice facing your fear and resisting doing a compulsion or a safety behavior, the more you can grow that connection back. Oh, sure. You can uh, make new neural pathways. Neuroplasticity yes. is huge right now. So, yes. yeah, yes. that's that's great news. And you did get that point across. Yes. Good, good. <laughs> yes. And so I think it's helpful for us from a self-compassionate perspective to understand our brain so that we stop blaming ourselves as if 
you know, this is our fault. Often it's very much biological or genetic um, on why we get these diagnoses. So, you know, that's a piece of the work as well. Well, you know, I've been a clinician for 30 years and I had seen some of these terms and, and but I was flabbergasted is too strong a word, surprised is too weak to read the, what, one, two, three, four, five, I don't know, like 14 or 15 different types of OCD. Well, I think the thing to remember here is OCD can attack any part of your life. Mm-hmm. Obsessions can attack the things you value most. And usually they do identify and attack the things you value most. If you're a mom, often you'll have obsessions about your baby. If you deeply hold, and we call that harm or pedophilia obsessions. If, you, if you're really connected to your religion, you may have religious or moral obsessions. If you deeply value um, your work, you may have perfectionistic obsessions. Um, you know, if you um, have Uh, You know, there are so many different subtypes that you could have. If you have a strong sense of responsibility, you might have responsibility obsessions. Um, And so these types of OCD, the treatment's the same. So it's important to know, but but we have these subtypes to help, number one, break stigma. Oh, sure. Uh, Because, you know, it's so distressing for people with OCD if they're having thoughts that they want to hurt their baby, right? When they... They're the most loving moms. They want nothing but to care for their baby and keep their baby safe. But they keep having these intrusive, repetitive thoughts about, you know, could I or couldn't I? Um, And so we have those subtypes for that reason. I mean, I've identified um, however many, I don't even remember now, but what I would really stress is there's hundreds of categories. Those are just the ones that are the most common. We have symmetry obsessions, contamination obsessions, hand, health anxiety is another un, you know, under a subtype of OCD. And so, yeah, there are so many different subtypes. One of them I wanted to ask you a question about is harm OCD. And I wondered how, if there is research showing that that is connected with trauma. So new research has started to connect it with trauma. So this is a little of a a controversial topic in the OCD community. So yes, there is a high relationship between people who have diagnosis with OCD and have had some traumatic event in their life. That makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. It does. It does. However, we have to be really careful because the treatment of OCD usually doesn't involve going back and looking at the past, right? Um, And so people, when you have trauma, if you have a, a traumatic event that's happened, we try to separate the two treatments because what we come into risk of is spending time in session ruminating or compulsing over something and trying to find the root cause, which can sometimes keep people stuck. And then there are the other group of people who have what would you would assume they've got harm obsessions or pedophilia obsessions. You would assume there must be some trauma there, but they will report like, no, my childhood was actually pretty blissful, but just out of nowhere, I felt like my brain broke. And all of a sudden I was having these obsessions that were so violent and, and crushing. And so the, like we said, there's controversy because 
Um, some people report the link and some people report absolutely no link. So we don't have enough information yet to really understand. But the good news is they're doing a lot more research in this area now and looking at the crossover between uh, either a traumatic event or actual PTSD with OCD. Gotcha. Gotcha. I saw that Reed Wilson did one of your, one of your reviews uh, on the back of the book, and he's one of my favorites, has been for years. And so I noticed right off the bat that you talked about, you know, the steps of somewhat detaching from the obsession by saying, I notice that I feel this, I notice that I'm thinking this, and that's a huge, you know, Reed Wilson thing too, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. And um, I have to tell you, I have panic disorder myself. And um, one of the things that I got from Reed many, many years ago, uh, and I think you, you talk about describing the perfectionistic persona or something like that, or the perfectionistic voice. I named my panic Bob. <laughs> and and Bob comes to visit every now yeah. and then. And he usually starts in my legs. And um so uh, I just, I, could you talk a little bit about that detaching and, and beginning to see it as not you, but outside of you? Mm, yeah. And that's so, I love that you called it Bob, because what you're doing is you're taking away the power because we have intrusive, everybody has intrusive thoughts and intrusive feelings and intrusive emotions and, and images and urges and sensations for people with panic, very much so. Um, when we have them, we can really over-identify with them. Like if I have the thought about something bad happening, that must mean I want that bad thing to happen or that that bad thing will now happen because I thought about it. And so the act of observing or being able to be witness to our thoughts allows us to then not engage in them as if they're fact, because yes. we know just because you think something doesn't mean it's a fact, right? True for depression, true for panic disorder, true for so many disorders. And so the act of observing and being able to just like watch Oh, okay. Interesting. Bob's here, right? Or interesting. I'm having a thought about harming my baby or I'm having a thought about maybe sinning or I'm having a thought that I'm having a heart attack. You know, these are coming for different subtypes is that way you can, you can diffuse from the thought as if it's so important to now just seeing it as just like a cloud that floats across the sky and you're just... How did you get so interested in OCD and anxiety in and of itself? Yeah, it's funny because my mental struggles were, you know, that I've resonated with your book. That's why I had you on the podcast. I myself had an eating disorder and over the years have really learned a lot of mine was perfectly hidden depression, right? Um, when I became a therapist, I was really interested in anxiety in general, and I wanted to have a, um, a an internship that would very much specialize me in anxiety, and I, I struggled to find one. And I was lucky because I landed an in internship at an OCD center here in Los Angeles. Right. And I just fell in love with the work. I loved it because it's very dynamic. It's fun. Um, the clients are wonderful. And I felt it very much aligned with my experience as an eating disorder in that there was an obsession. Mm -hmm. 
it was un- I had it, I repetitively I was doing these compulsive behaviors to remove it and I was stuck in that cycle so it very much resonated with my eating disorder and compulsive exercise experience. So can you can you rename that cycle for us again because that there's a graphic in the book about that but I just think I know it's basic information but I think it's important. Yeah. So the way we conceptualize OCD and this is a part of the education I do if I had a face-to-face client but I talk about it in the book is so OCD starts with an obsession. An obsession is an unwanted thought, feeling, sensation, urge. And it's usually repetitive and very uncomfortable. And when we have that, we usually, it accom- it's accompanied by a lot of anxiety. Now, naturally, no human wants to be anxious. No one wants to feel uncomfortable. No, it's unpleasant. It's not fun <laughs> at all. No. And so what a person with OCD does, but I actually think people with eating disorders do this too. And I think panic disorder and social anxiety is because the anxiety is uncomfortable, we do a behavior or we engage in a behavior, we call it a compulsion to reduce or remove that uncertainty or anxiety. But the problem with this is, yes, it does give you some relief, but it actually reinforces to the brain that the thought and obsession was important and must be dealt with. So that next time you have the obsession, you're going to be stuck in a cycle of going obsession, anxiety, compulsion, relief, and then you go back into the cycle and the cycle doesn't end and it's brutal, right? And then often what happens is you might do a small compulsion And next time you might do a bigger compulsion. And before you know it, OCD has taken over your life. It's taken the things you love. It's taken the things you value. And so what we want to do in treatment, and we talk about this in the book, is most people, I I always laugh when I tell this story, is most people come to therapy and they say, I know how to stop the cycle. Teach me how to not have obsessions. (laughs) It will stop the cycle at the obsession point. Mm-hmm. And I'll explain to them, number one, if I could figure that out, I would be a millionaire. Yes, you would. Yeah. But number two, the more you try to stop a thought, the more you're probably going to have it. It's called thought suppression. It happens, you know, for every human, but particularly people with OCD and these OCD-related disorders. So we can't intervene by having less thoughts. We can intervene at the compulsion part of the cycle, which is by reducing our reaction to the thoughts. We can actually devalue the thoughts and make the thoughts less important and train our brain not to set off the alarm in our amygdala that this is a terrible, horrible, you know, no good, very bad thing. And so that's the work. Yeah, I, I I loved your points about the roadblocks to self-compassion. And you talked about really four major ones that I remember. Uh, I'm not worthy. Uh, I'm it, This is too bad. This is too hard. I'm too preoccupied. I won't be able to do this. I'll fail. It will make me weak and lazy. I remember a therapist asking me years ago, what if you took the thumb out of your back? And I looked at her and I said, I would become a slug. So, <laughs> although I didn't have obsessive compulsive disorder, so I really uh, resonated with some of these uh, roadblocks to starting to try to have self-compassion. Yeah. Well, the cool thing is, is once we identify the roadblock to treating ourselves with compassion, compassion becomes a little easier, right? Because there often are so many roadblocks our society instills in us. 
um, that, you know, we've got to pull ourselves up with our bootstraps and don't let yourself off the hook. And the biggest one I get is I'm afraid that I'll stop being motivated Mm. and I need my motivation because life's already so hard. You know, and so, you know, it's important that we break through those and look at those um, because, you know, through the practice of self-compassion, the treatment becomes so much easier too. I thought you did a wonderful job in the book about taking the steps that you know because of your experience and your expertise really are helpful to and to, for them to go in a systematic way that really begins to bring to your awareness and actually practice. You talk a lot about, you know, this takes practice. So the way that we structured the book, it was actually really hard for me because I'm not an author by nature. I'm not a writer by nature. So really what I did is I sat down and I really just said, okay, Kimberly, what would you do with a client and what are the steps? So the first part is first understanding OCD. We have to understand OCD to treat OCD because OCD is by like so, so scary and, and can turn somebody's whole self-identity upside down. So we look at that and then my goal is because the work of OCD is to stare your fear in the face, mm-hmm. which is so paradoxical it lean feels, into it is what you say lean into it mm-hmm. lean in right so it's so anti it goes against what your intuition is saying our intuition naturally wants us to run away from fear to get rid of fear but the treatment involves staring fear in the face so we practice a lot of compassion skills right um, uh, being able to hold space for our discomfort because remember the cycle is you have an obsession and then you're uncomfortable. And so in order to not do the compulsion, you need to be able to hold space for your own suffering, right? To really learn how to nurture your discomfort instead of push it down and criticize it and judge it and punish yourself for it. Mm -hmm. Um, So we spend a lot of time, you know, tending to and writing letters to your discomfort and really just, being able to be with your discomfort without creating more pain. One of the stories I tell very early in the book is a parable of the two arrows. And and this is very simply that if you imagine you're out in a field and you're picking berries for your family, and then all of a sudden you get an arrow in your leg, think of the arrow and the arrows come from a tribe you know, another tribe or somebody who's hunting, as you know, out across the field as well, is that pain is a part of being human. Humans suffer. There is pain in being a human. And for those with mental illness, you do have those first arrows that happen. What we want to do is when we identify that we're in pain, we want to be able to make space and be gentle and tender towards that pain because what we tend to do is we pull out that arrow or we pull out our own arrow and then we dig it in our other leg and by criticizing ourselves, you idiot, you shouldn't have gotten hit by an arrow. You should have known better. You should have prevented this. How did you let this happen? Right. And so our job is we can't stop the first arrow, but we can intervene and prevent the second arrow where we stab ourselves metaphorically in the leg. And so that's the that's the 
the main concepts of working with discomfort. And then from there, when it comes to OCD, what we want to do is identify each and every obsession that someone has. We want to identify each and every compulsion. And I say in the book, you know, there may be 17 pages yes, of compulsion. Exactly. That's okay, right? Like, it's, it's not, don't be afraid to acknowledge how severe your disorder is. And then from there, what we want to do is we want to practice exposure and response prevention, mm-hmm. um, which is facing your fear, doing the scary thing, and then resisting doing the compulsion to remove your discomfort. But instead, this is where the magic is. Instead of doing the compulsion, we really hold and we stand up for ourselves and we pr- and we. We stand by ourselves as that discomfort rises and falls on its own. And it will. It will. We do this with panic as well. You mentioned is if a client came to me and said, you know, I didn't panic, I'll say that's great. But even if you did panic, I'm really interested on whether you were able to tend to your discomfort as it rose and fell. And not yourself for it. Right. That's the real win. Not the absence of panic, but really just showing up for yourself and riding that wave. Mm -hmm. And so we talk about different ways we can do that. There are different forms of exposure. And then at the end, we really look at the grief because there is so much grief that goes with having OCD or any mental illness. That We grieve what we've lost. We grieve our identity. We grieve the, the times that we missed out on. And so we talk a lot about that as well. You know, I had a question about the difference in this approach using self-compassion and the more historic version of OCD treatment, which, you know, I remember sort of shuddering at the thought of, okay, you're scared of spiders, so go stand in a bunch of room of spiders. I mean, you know, that was kind of a, I don't know, haunting and and disturbing sense of exposure. And this is so different because of the compassion, because of the awareness, because of the, your emphasis on do what you can, but accept that this is going to take some time. Yeah. You know, Um, One of the main points at the beginning, one of the concepts of self-compassion is imperfection. Mm -hmm. And I I have found I'm a part of this category is the anxious folks tend to be really hard on themselves and perfectionistic. And that can interfere with recovery outcomes, right? If you go in and you're like, no, I have to do this perfectly and I have to get it in it. The treatment should be linear, right? And I have a diagram in there of like... I laughed when I saw that. <laughs> this is what you want it to be, but really it's like a total mess. It's up and it's down and it's around and it's a circle and and that's recovery, but it's also life, right? Like recovery, as I sort of say to my patients, is it's a metaphor for life. Life's not linear. It's bumpy. We don't always meet our expectations Um, it's up and down. We do great. And then we don't do great. And so I really wanted to emphasize that as the norm. Like, let's just throw out the old book about what we think treatment should look like. And let's acknowledge that it's up and down and it's bumpy and it's hard. I I wrote down the phrase fighting fire with fire as I was reading about the practicing and the important part of doing it repetitively. And I thought, you know, it's kind of like, 
if you have all these obsessions and compulsions and they're very repetitive, which of course is part of the definition, then, you know, really working on fighting fire with fire that you've got to repeat the correction for this or the hope for correction or at least the attempt at correction and begin to work with yourself in that way and do that in a, like you say, in a very accepting uh, way. So that's, I, I, I don't know, that's what I Mm. thought I'd throw that into the conversation. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, you know, I I would love to write this book for every disorder that I treat because, yeah. um, because th- there are nuanced pieces of different treatment for different diagnoses, but the compassion piece is so important for, you know, I think about my for the folks with social anxiety and they're so hard on themselves for... Um, you know, what other people, how they're judged, being judged, mm-hmm. you know, you know, so I think it, this shows up in so many areas and that we do have to remember that treatment is, isn't linear. So, yeah. Another thing that jumped out at me though, it's sort of toward the end or more latter part of what you're asking people to do. And and by the way, the book has wonderful reflections and questions. And there's a lot of the book that's about, you know, the, the reader working on the reflections and having a place to write. And it's very, it's a very user-friendly book. You, you did talk about it toward the end, you need to go on and, or I'm saying in, maybe that's incorrect, to make a challenge list. And that struck me as the, the examples that you were talking about were really quite tangible and concrete. After being a clinician for a long time, I, I think you get your hope from behavior change. Mm-hmm. Insight's wonderful. Understanding something's great. But where you get your hope is from seeing your thoughts change, your emotions change, your behavior change. And so that really struck me as sort of a as a structure for people to say i am better because you know i'm i'm one step closer to where i want to be because i obsessed for 3 minutes not 5 minutes <laughs> you know whatever exactly. it is mm-hmm. yeah no exactly so um what we want and this is the part i love you know i love the phrase take back your life from ocd right is what that's really saying is we do an inventory of what OCD has taken from you. Mm-hmm. And then we don't just talk about that and the pain around that. We take our life back by changing behaviors. And so, yeah, we do a, like a little functional analysis. We create a challenge list of like what, and I often will say to my patients, like, how would you like your morning to go? Well, you know, if you were living according to your values, how would you like it to go? And they'd say, well, I'd make my coffee and I would maybe spend some time with my dog. And then I would, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect, right? It could be the simple things. That's often the best part of life. And then I go, okay, how is OCD getting in the way of that? And let's just make sure we get to that. Like, that's the goal. That's the North Star and to work towards just getting your life to live instead of making your choices according to fear, you make your choices according to values. And it can be such a powerful thing by actually going and going, all right, I have to feel my feelings. I have to tolerate my thoughts and I'm going to make my coffee and I'm going to play with my dog. If that's what's 
been prevented in the past. It's just very affirming and very proactive. I like the whole approach. Do you think that someone could successfully buy your book and work independently? Or do you really think that they need to work with a therapist? Ideally, I'm always going to say to work with a therapist because OCD can be a tricky little thing and wiggle its way into you. And so that it's hard. That's why I talk about wisdom. It's hard to notice and identify it until you get some practice. Mm -hmm. But does that mean you have to have a therapist? Absolutely not. I've had so many people, you know, I, I have an online course about OCD using ERP And lots of people have told me that they've gone through that without a therapist. And it's, it's called self-study, right? You, you just need to know what to do. And the book hopefully does that. Mm -hmm. And then it's a matter of just repeat, 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 keep trying, keep trying, fail, keep trying, keep, keep trying. Like that's all it is. So you can absolutely do this without a therapist. Um, Always ideally, I'm going to encourage a therapist, but that's sometimes not within people's resources. So still have hope if you don't have access. What do you do when a family has organized around someone's OCD? For example, I have a a fairly new client whose child literally did almost die. And she has her, her correction for that. And she feels as if she she wasn't present enough. So there's a lot of guilt and shame. Well, the whole family has organized around uh, her need to know where they are 24 Uh seven. And it's only, she's worked with me, I don't know, a month. And she's beginning to say, oh, wow, this is not good, you Mm -hmm. know? And yet it's really a, almost a family systems kind of problem at this point. So do you bring in family members or what Mm -hmm. do you No, the family members are crucial to recovery. Number one, they can provide support. But often when someone comes to us, um, the family is doing what we call accommodation compulsions, which means the family is um, because they don't want to see their family member in pain they end up doing the compulsions for them, right? And so what we do is we want to actually acknowledge first that the person doing this, the loved one, is doing it because they love the person with OCD, but to then educate them that you're actually keeping them stuck. Is that enabling kind of thing again? Yeah, we call it accommodation, but we could also call it enabling. And then what we want to do is we want to empower the family member to see that, You continuing this behavior keeps them stuck. The most loving thing you can do is actually reduce those accommodations. So you can go onto Google. You could vary. It's free PDF. It's called the Family Accommodation Scale for OCD. And it's a free PDF. Um, It's been researched, but it basically is a checklist where the family member can go in and fill out the ways in which they are accommodating the person's OCD. And then from there, you and the the parent or the loved one of the person with OCD can slowly work on reducing those accommodations. Now, ideally, you're going to include the client, right? Because they want to, you know, we we don't want to pull the rug underneath from underneath them. Mm -hmm. However, there are many cases where child or the partner or the family member doesn't want to get better. They don't, they're not ready to get better. And the parent or the loved one, the partner will come and say, 
I can't keep doing this. This is, I'm not getting sleep. My quality of life is going down. And so if the partner doesn't want to be included, sometimes we do have to begin this process for the, the, the family member um, of reducing it because, you know, one person's suffering. We don't want the whole family suffering. Um, so ideally you would always include the partner and or the family member, but in some instances, we do a really respectful handoff of writing them a beautiful, compassionate letter, telling them why they can't continue to do this behavior, sharing how they plan to support them as they reduce this behavior, um, and really work at um, holding space for the pain for everybody. And that can be really successful. Well, uh, I'm going to put this on YouTube, so I want to make sure I have your book. That's wonderful, and it's a you can see it's a beautiful workbook. It's quite thorough, and it's called The Self-Compassion Workbook for OCD by Kimberly Quinlan. And um, I so appreciate you being on today, and like I said, I mean, I love to read things where I learn, and I definitely learn from you. So thank you for that as well, and I hope anybody listening will also learn Kimberly's podcast is called Your Anxiety Toolkit, and I have listened to it more than once. Um, it's really wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. If you want, I, I have a ton of free resources um, on cbtschool.com. Um, I'm on Instagram a ton as well. If people are wanting more free resources or just to sort of start to marinate in these concepts, that's always a good place to start with free resources. Thank you, Kimberly. I appreciate it. I think you can tell that Kimberly and I had a great time on that interview. I really feel very simpatico with her, and I think she does me. So I hope you enjoyed it. And for those of you who struggle with anxiety disorders, again, her own podcast is Your Anxiety Toolkit, and it is wonderful. She has quite a huge Instagram following, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people. And she talks more about how to use her services at the CBT school on her Instagram. And then again, I think is just at Kimberly Quinlan. And our Facebook page is at Kimberly Quinlan CBT School. So those are the two major ways you can check her out. Thanks again for being here at Self Work Today. Thank you for leaving ratings and reviews wherever you listen. For those of you who've left ratings and reviews for my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, there have been several of those this week. Thank you so very much. It's more than appreciated. And of course, I love hearing that the book is actually making a difference in people's lives. You can go to my website, drmargaretrutherford.com, and subscribe there, and you'll get a weekly newsletter, I promise nothing else, that will contain the weekly blog post as well as my weekly podcast, and also bonus episodes, of course. would love to have you in that group. And you can always use the SpeakPipe app that can be found in your show notes or prominently displayed at drmargaretrutherford.com as well. Thanks for being here. Please take very good care in these anxious times. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.